0: If you don't have a bible with you this morning we would really like to encourage bibles to, oh children to children's church oh i thought they were staying in here oh all of you children may be dismissed for children's church and visitors you didn't announce visitors oh we didn't announce visitors well let's uh this doesn't count for the sermon time so remember you have your timer up there uh huh yeah For those of you who are visiting us this morning, and what we'd like to do is just take a moment to welcome you and to acknowledge your presence. So we want to give you a present by acknowledging your presence. So if you would just take a moment as the young people are leaving, would you just stand and let us know that you're here and we would love to give you a present. One of these young ladies would love to give you something. Anyone else visiting? I know there's some other visitors. Oh, wow, several other visitors. Wonderful, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, good to have you here. Hope the Lord blesses y'all's time with us. As I asked, let's open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3.15. If you don't have a Bible, we would encourage you, if you have one at home, to bring it with you on the time of our services so you can follow along as we open the Word of God. But if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, would you raise your hand and one of our ushers will be glad to allow you to use one of the Bibles that we have from the church. So raise your hand. If you don't have a Bible, we'd like you to have one during the service. And so uh, just let us know that. 1 Timothy 3.15. This has kind of been the, if you would, touchtone verse of this series we're in the midst of a series called the covenant church covenant series and it has to do with our commitment to God's purpose in the church so each week we're studying a different aspect of what we believe is important as a covenant aspect of the church and to be committed to that last week you remember Keith talked about the authority of the word of God this morning we'll talk about a biblical understanding of the doctrine of salvation and reading from 1 Timothy three, fourteen and 15, the Apostle Paul says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know, you will know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. And so as we have been going through this series, what we are doing is being prepared for a time to come together where all of us have made a commitment to what we understand as the purpose of God in the church. And coming to that place so that we as a church can all be together in honoring God and understanding the Word and in pursuing His purposes so that we as a church will walk in a way that actually fulfills His great purpose of being the household of God. The church, the pillar and the support of the truth. So this morning, as I said, we'll talk a little bit about the doctrine of salvation. And as we do this, we're going to go through just a general description of the doctrine of salvation This is something that we have talked about repeatedly and have discussed and have emphasized over and over for years. And so this morning we're not going to be able to go into any great detail in any particular aspect. And so if your favorite understanding and aspect of the gospel of salvation is not really emphasized the way you think it should have been, then we'll be glad to give you the tapes when that aspect was emphasized perhaps for 15 weeks. And so let's remember that. We're just going to be going through this as a general survey because we're hoping just to make a clarification of the entire doctrine for us. And we're trusting God to do that this morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you so much. Father, we remember that when these men of God, these men whose lives have been so radically impacted and changed by Your presence in them. When they wrote the churches, Father, so often they began by alluding to and specifying particular aspects of how the church was saved and why the church was saved and when the church was saved. Father, because they knew that The doctrine of salvation is that which sets us rightly before you and you in your right place in our hearts. Father, they were so aware of the significance and centrality of understanding this particular doctrine. Father, they knew that all of the other outgrowths of the church would be based upon the understanding and the experience and the living out of the doctrine of salvation. For, Father, as we go through this this morning, Father, would you minister to us? Would you clarify for us? Would you remind us? Would you teach us? Would you lead us? Would you correct us? Would you do whatever is needed in our lives, Father, so that this church may be a church that shows forth your glory as the household of God? That we may be a church which is exemplifying of being the pillar and the support of the truth. That your name may be honored. And that your name may be glorified in the earth. In Jesus' name, thank you for that. Amen. The doctrine of salvation, what do we mean by that? Well, you know, this is one of those great struggles of how do you get the enormity of the understanding and the enormity of these issues down to succinct phrases. And I don't know whether this has happened this morning. I don't know whether that will be the way it is, but it is a struggle to try to compress all that we would like to bring to the table into a very few words. But this morning, I, I believe this is what the Lord gave me for us. I think I changed this sentence 30,000 times during the last week. And simply put, the doctrine of salvation explains the ministry of God in redeeming a people for His glory. That's what I believe, if I can boil it down, what is the doctrine of salvation? It is that work of God, that great ministry of God in redeeming His people, a people, for His glory. Now, you might ask, why should we be committed to this particular doctrine? Why is it important? Why do we begin, after having discussed the authority of the Word of God, why would we begin here? Why don't we begin with something else? Well, we begin here because we believe this is where God begins. In fact, we know this is where God begins. He begins in our lives by saving us and as a consequence of us having been saved then everything of God begins to issue forth as a result of our having been made part of his household so why are we going to study this why do we want to be committed to the doctrine of salvation because you see it will enable us the way we understand this doctrine will enable us to better fulfill what the holy spirit has told us in 1st timothy 3:15 how we ought to behave in the household of God, for the glory of God. The way we understand this doctrine, the way we understand the place and the significance and the power and the centrality of the grace of God, the way we understand our function in that and our relationship to grace and how we are impacted by grace and how we are to take hold of grace and walk with grace, All of that has to do and will impact many areas in our lives. The way we understand this doctrine is going to influence how we relate to God. First, it will impact how we relate to God. So that in and of itself and by itself should be all I would need to say concerning the significance of having a biblical understanding of the doctrine of salvation, how we relate to God, because it tells us how He has related to us, when and why and all of the other details, and our response back to Him is out of the understanding of this particular doctrine, how we understand and relate to the church. What is the church all about? Why the church? Why do we have to come together? The doctrine of salvation will be very much an impaction upon these understandings and these relationships. How we relate to our parents. How How we worship God. How we are transformed, being changed on a daily basis. How we relate to one another. How we spend our time. How we spend our money. Where we go and what we do. How we make decisions. How we relate to our feelings and circumstances. What are all these things about? How do we relate to them? The doctrine of salvation very much speaks into those issues how we relate to the rest of the world. Do we embrace the world? Do we shun the world? Do we, what do we, how do we relate to all of these things? Well, the doctrine of salvation will lay forth the premise or the foundation for an understanding of all of these and so many more issues. So let's take a few minutes this morning and look at the doctrine of salvation itself. God's purpose. Why? Why? I believe we always begin with this. What is God's purpose? The doctrine of salvation, like any doctrine of the church, like any issue of Scripture, can and will be understood only as we begin with God. We always begin with God. Why? Because He is the one who has always been. 1 Timothy 3.15 uses this phrase. You remember it? The household of God. The household of God. So that must tell me immediately that God's purpose in our salvation is to have a family, is to have children, is to have a group of people around himself in a home-like setting, if I can say it that way. The household of God. And so his purpose, the purpose of the doctrine of salvation, has to do with this issue of family. Remember Matthew 1, 21, The Holy Spirit is speaking to Joseph as he hears about Mary being pregnant outside of wedlock. And the Holy Spirit is telling him what to do. And he tells him this, and she, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people for, from their sins. You see, the doctrine of salvation has to do with what God has done to bring His people into His house. The doctrine of salvation has to do with what God has done to bring His people into His house. Now, I emphasize the possessive pronoun His. His people, His house. Remember in 1 Peter 2.10, we've heard this verse several times during the last weeks. For once you were not a people. We were just out there, aimless. But now you are the people of, or belonging to, or from God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In Isaiah 51 the verses 4 to 7, I won't read them this morning, but when you read those verses, God is emphasizing two things. He is saying, my people and my salvation. And He connects directly as equal, God's salvation is for God's people. God's salvation is for God's people. He says in verse 7 of Isaiah 51, a people in whose heart is my law. God's salvation is for God's people. Now, when did God do all this? When did God decide who would be His people? Well, actually, in a, in a real way, you know, when we speak about God, God is the same, I never change. So God has never made a decision. It, it, it's like it's always been. I mean, can you grab it? How can God always have had this in his heart and in his mind, in his purpose? Didn't it have a beginning? No, because God has never had a beginning and because he's never changed, he has always had us in his heart. And so when did God decide, if you would, decide in quotes that we would become his people? Before he even made us. Now that's important because you see it begins to show me and you that our salvation is not the consequence of something that we have done or will do when did he do when did he make the decision before he created us remember romans 8:29 for whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to his son foreknew the word is prognosko it means to have an intimate personal, familial, family, knowledge, and relationship with. It's not just knowing something because if I know someone well enough and completely, I will know all the some things about that person. I will know what you're going to do, why you're going to do it, when you're going to do it, with whom you're going to do it, and all the other things and activities of doing. But the word foreknowledge is not just about the some things that God knows but it's about the someone that God knows, knowing someone intimately and completely. He obviously knows everything else. 1 Peter 1.20. The word reference, referencing Jesus says this, For Jesus was foreknown by God before the foundation of the world. It's the same word as in Romans 8.29. And you see, it has to do with God's knowledge of Jesus, God's intimate relationship of heart-to-heart oneness with His Son. It's not just that God knew what Jesus would do one day. It's that God knew Christ in love, fully accepting and embracing they are one together. This is what God says about His people. This is when his people, if you would, became his people, which it never did become because we've always been his people, etc., etc. Remember what Paul says in Galatians 1.15, the Apostle Paul. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? You remember the Apostle Paul on the way to Damascus? And he's going there and he hates Jesus. A man who hates Jesus gets saved. Now, I was always taught that in order to be saved, you must have faith to be born again. And Paul isn't expressing faith here in Jesus. He hates Jesus. And you remember, Jesus interferes and intercedes, sorry, and uh, interposes in Paul's life. And Paul is radically changed as a result of that. And he says in Rome, uh, Galatians 1.15, he says, but when God, who had set me apart, when? Even from my mother's womb. Before I was even conceived, God chose me. Jeremiah 1.15 says the same thing. God knew Him in the womb. So you see, God chose or elected. He chose or He elected His people. For His great, by His grace alone, for His glory alone. This is why we are the people of God. We became the people of God by His grace alone, and we became the people of God for His glory alone. Let's turn to John chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. You remember the great prayer of Jesus. Jesus is about to go to the cross, and they've had the last meal. And he says to his disciples, let's cross over into the garden and I'm going to pray for a little while. And John is given this revelation of this great prayer of the Lord Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says in John 17, 1 and 2. In relation to by grace alone for his glory alone, Jesus says this, Father, the hour has come Glorify your Son in order that your Son may glorify you, even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, God's people given to Jesus, that He may give them eternal life. All whom you have given Him, that's God's people. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know, foreknow, foreknowledge, intimate relationship, not just of things that you do, but I know you now and I have always known you. It's the same word, prognosco. He says, I know my own, my people. And my own, my own people know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. So my knowledge of my people is the same kind of knowledge. My relationship with my people, my embracement and acceptance of my people is the same embracement and acceptance of my Father to me. And I lay down my life for my sheep. What sheep? What sheep? Who are the sheep? Jesus lays down His life for His people. For His own. He says, I know them. I know them like God knows me. And I'm going to go to the cross for my people. Now, what is our need in this? Our need is we need to be redeemed, to become God's people. If someone were to say saved or salvation, I think intrinsic in the word itself is an indication or at least perhaps a blaring warning. Something's wrong. You need to be saved. Something's wrong. Saved from what? You know, you need to be rescued. That indicates that there is some kind of a danger. And when the Bible talks about being saved... It is referring to an imminent and eternal danger that every person on the face of the earth is born into. What is this imminent and eternal danger? What is the danger? The danger is the wrath of God. That's the biggest danger we have. The biggest danger that there is before any living person is that they will endure the wrath of God forever. There is no greater danger and there is no greater reason to be warning people than flee from the wrath to come. Remember how everybody, or not everybody, I mean, a few of us stayed around, but you know how most people often left before Katrina? Why? Flee! You see, this is the message of salvation. Salvation. The wrath of God, you're in eminent and eternal danger. What does the Bible say about this? Romans 1, 18 and 19. The apostle says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God, you see, everybody in their conscience knows something about God. It is evident within them. Everybody knows that there is a God and that we are duty-bound to worship and to obey this God. Everybody knows that. It's within them. For God made it evident to them. Romans 2, 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What is our need? Our need is to escape the wrath of God. That's our greatest need. How do we get into this mess anyway? I mean, you know, i just... I know I did a few things wrong, you know, but in the wrath of God, how do we get into this? Well, we got into it a long time ago. We got into it through Adam. Through Adam. And one of the things that Frank enjoys really emphasizing is our inheritance. If you will need to understand inheritance, go to Frank. He's the inheritance man around here. Through Adam. But didn't we get into this through Adam? Frank is nodding yes. Okay, I'm okay. When Adam sinned, remember the Garden of Eden? I don't believe that story, that story. The Garden of Eden is true. It's true. We may not understand it. It may seem quizzical. You know, it just doesn't jive with a lot of technological and scientific facts. I am going to take the stand on what the Word of God says and be wrong than take the stand on what the Word of technology says and be wrong. And I'm going to tell you right now, I can't put all this together. I don't know how it all fits. I don't really care how it fits. I just need to know what God's Word says and know that there is a truth here. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, we each inherited the consequences and the presence of sin because the consequences and the presence of that rebellion against God was passed on down to all the children of Adam. We are the children of Adam. How many of us know, sometimes we're pleased about this and sometimes we're not, that our children inherit certain physical and behavioral characteristics from their and them. How many of us know that? I mean, I am delighted to know that my grandchildren have inherited my good looks and wit. Ashley wouldn't agree with that, but you know, that's just the way it is. We have inherited who we are today in the natural from the family line. We've inherited spiritually and everything else who we are today from the family line. Our great father, Adam. Let me read a couple of verses to you. Now, remember when we read these verses, remember what we learned about the authority of Scripture. Everybody last week, we all clapped about the authority of Scripture. We love Scripture. We believe Scripture. Well, let me tell you, Scripture is very challenging. I mean, there's some stuff in here like you say, I don't like that. I wish it hadn't said that. What does the Word say about this? In Adam all die. It's not my fault. How can I be blamed for somebody else? <clears throat> but where did your big nose come from? Where did your funny ears come from? Where did your receding hairline come from? From others. That's the way life is. In Adam, all die. Listen to these verses from Romans 5, 12, 18, and 19. I just put them together. Therefore, just as through one man's sin, one man Sin entered into the world, and death as a result of sin. So death spread to all men. Paul is saying, you want to know how I can prove that everybody has inherited sin? Paul says, the proof that everybody has inherited sin in their nature is that everybody has inherited the consequence of sin in their nature, which is called what? Death. The moment we're born, we begin to go toward the inevitable time of death. So then, as through one transgression, you remember Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men, as through the one man's disobedience, disobedience, the many were made sinners. You see, we became sinners by inheriting Adam's sin nature. Our problem isn't that we sin. Our problem is that we are, by nature, sin. It's not what we do is the problem. It's who we are is the problem because who we are produces what we do. The root produces the fruit. The fruit just proves the root. Ephesians 2, 3, remember? We are, by nature, children of wrath, children deserving of... Of God's wrath. So, what has our sin done? What is the result of this sin? The first and primary and most important and significant result of sin is what it has done to our relationship with God. We have been alienated forever from God Himself, from the very fount of life, from the blessing of blessings, forever, alienated. Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear. He does not hear. It's important to remember that verse. People born in sin, and all of us were born in sin. We have been born separate, alienated from the very presence of God. But you see, God wants to make us His household, so we'll get to how He does this. But first to understand our condition, we began in a very negative place. We've been alienated from God. If there's nothing else, and everything else actually is as a consequence of that particular major consequence, that's the foundational consequence of our sin. Our sin has corrupted our hearts. Corrupted our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and exceedingly wicked or corrupt. You see, even Mother Teresa's heart is corrupt and wicked. You see, it's easy to say Hitler's heart was corrupt and wicked. Look what he did. But even the sweetest lady in this church, Hope Garandona, how old are I'm sorry, Thelma, how old are you today? 88? Right? I love bragging on this lady. She's one of the most wonderful women in the church. But that lady's heart outside of Christ is corrupt. And it's wicked forever. Well, you know, we don't... You say, mm, man, that's a little tough. Mm. But we're looking at it not from the natural perspective. I mean, she looks fine. She's sweet and she's quiet. I think we'd have to ask the family about some of the other issues. But, but you know, she's just a delight to be around. She's humble. But when God looks at that unredeemed heart, he sees corruption and wickedness. We just don't see it the same way. Remember, God looks on the heart, on the inside. We just have eyes to be able to look on the outside, which most of us from the outside don't look that bad. But God doesn't look that You see, all of our affections, all of our motives and attitudes and our desires, our emotions, etc., everything has been poisoned by sin. There's not an area of our lives which has not been poisoned by sin. There's not a redeemed, redeemable within the context of itself outside of God that is not a redeemable aspect about myself or about you outside of the work of God. Let's turn to Romans chapter 3. Again, we're going through this quickly, I realize that, but we've taught this. If you need to get further elucidation in any of these issues, we would really be glad to give you the tapes. And then probably you need to come talk to us if you're still having difficulty. Look at what Romans 3, 10 through 18 says. Listen to the indictment of God against mankind. There is none righteous, not even one all of us included in that none? There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become vain or useless. There is none who does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving, the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We're in a difficult place. We in trouble. We're helpless. We're dead. Romans 5, 6 says, We are helpless while we were still helpless. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 begins, And you who are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. You see, there is absolutely no hope for mankind to escape the wrath of God within the context of his own desires or abilities. Now, can we write that down and get it straight in our hearts today? No hope whatsoever within me. No hope. Without God and without hope in this world, we are absolutely doomed to to destruction within the context of our own nature and of our own abilities and desires no hope no hope at all hopeless ah but you see the doctrine of salvation not only announces our hopelessness it announces god's grace god's grace This is where the news begins to be a little better for us. This is when the brow begins to be able to... How can we be rescued from God's wrath? How to get out of this? Well, the answer is we cannot. It must be God who does the rescuing. Are we beginning to see now that... I both cannot and do not want to call upon the name of the Lord. God must do something. He must rescue us. Now, how does He rescue us? We know how He rescues us. He rescues us through the Gospel. He rescues us through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of His great Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You see, Jesus is the very payment for our sin. By the way, I forgot... Some kind of way to put that in your notes. So you might want to put that in your notes. He rescues us by the gospel. Isn't it interesting, Todd was sharing this with me a few minutes ago, how quickly in our various lives we forget the centrality of grace in our lives and we forget that it is Jesus Christ who is the rescuer and the empower in our lives. And we go along trying to do a lot of things without this point. It just got left out as I was putting it together. So I realized that this morning. You see, Jesus is the very payment for all of our sin when He died on the cross. Because when He died on the cross, God judged our sin in Him. God judged the sins of His people in Christ and declares as a result in the resurrection... And in the giving of the Holy Spirit, His people who were in Christ being crucified are now declared not guilty. It's called justification. That's what God has done. That's what God has done. He's made a legal decision. Being just, the payment of sin has been completely and fully paid for at the cross. And now being merciful, he applies it to his family, to his children, to the household of God. Remember 1 John 1, 7, for the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from how much sin? Now you can't just say all. Oh. How much sin? Oh, you've got to be louder than that. How much sin is forgiven in Christ? All of my sin, all of it, is not a whit. That remains before the throne of God. But when the devil comes to accuse you when you sin, yes, you sin, but it's not held against you, which allows you in freedom and in joy and in trust and in love, To be able to repent of that sin. You see, we don't repent to get forgiven. I am forgiven. Therefore, I can now begin to live a life of repentance and overcoming of the sin's activity in my life. Not the forgiveness. The forgiveness is at the cross. Don't you see? You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, He sent the Holy Spirit to bring His resurrection life to all of God's household those who would call upon Him in faith. Well, how do we get rescued? Well, you would say the first thing in order to get rescued is we've got to call upon the name of the Lord. Doesn't the Bible say, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved? Yes, it says that in Romans 10, 13. Doesn't it say in Isaiah 51, Ho, everyone who is thirsty. If you're thirsty, come on and get some water. I mean, doesn't it say that? Doesn't it say that we must call we must ask, we must receive, we must, whatever the terminology is, doesn't it say that we must seek, seek ye the Lord while he may be found, call ye upon him while he is near, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, for he will have mercy upon him, and unto our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Doesn't, well, how do we get rescued? We must ask God to rescue us. But you see, the question is, How can we who are helpless and unable and dead ask God to do anything? Oh, that's true. Well, you see, God has given every man a measure of faith. Romans 12, 3. No. God has given into the household of faith to everybody in the church a household of faith. We are devoid of saving faith when we are born into this world. We have no saving faith in us at all when we're born into, the, uh, into this world, naturally. There is no saving faith in anybody. What, 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 you know, by faith, you know, what about the faith? You see, we cannot call upon the name of the Lord because... Why? Because our hearts have been completely corrupted. Well, what must happen? God must uncorrupt my heart. God must uncorrupt our hearts. God must come in and intervene into my heart to rescue me, to do something so my corrupted heart will no longer be corrupted. And so my heart will want to and desire to and have the ability to say yes to God. First Peter 1-3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us, He caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God caused us to be born again. See, God woos and wins our hearts by the message of the gospel. I don't know where the page is, but I don't need it anyway while I have it here. okay. Let's turn to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel's in the Old Testament. Past Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah and all that group. You remember Ezekiel was a prophet raised up by God to speak to the people of God, to explain to them and to give them hope. After Israel had been taken into captivity by the Babylonians in 586 BC, Jerusalem has been completely destroyed. Daniel's there. Remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're there. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar, all of them in Babylon together. And Ezekiel was speaking by the word of the Lord to his people. And God explains why you're there, what's happened. Then it looks hopeless, but God says, My people are here. My people. And I'm not going to let my people perish. I'm going to do something. You see, God must uncorrupt our corrupted hearts. Look in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. And the Lord says this. Then I will give you a new heart. A new heart. And put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from you and your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to remove the stony, corrupted heart. And I'm going to give you a different heart. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe all of my commandments. You notice that. Observing and walking is as a result of and after the Holy Spirit is placed into the person. I will do this work. Jesus called this in John 3, being born. Again, turn to John 3 and let's look at what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus concerning, I believe, this prophecy that Ezekiel has given so many years ago. You see, I will. Did you notice as you're turning to John 3? How many eyes are in that? Do you notice that your name and my name are not in that particular list of subjects? I will, I will, I will, I will. God initiates. He inaugurates. He is a progenitor. He is the mover in this work of salvation. He is not responding to me. I am responding to Him. It's not that I am, in order to be born again, I must have faith to be born again. The Bible teaches, in order to be, what? Have faith, I must be born again to, in order to have faith. Because if I have faith to be born again, then I contradict what the Word of God says. There is nothing in me that's good, and faith to call upon the name of the Lord is good. But what does the Bible say? Nothing. Where does the faith come from? God engenders a heart change. Now look at the voice. Remember active and passive voice? Don't have time to give an English lesson here. Active voice. The subject acts. It takes the initiative. John, hit. The passive voice. The subject is acted upon by an outside agency. It is affected or impacted by something which happens to it. The ball is hit. Do you get the difference? Jesus uses, talking about being born again, the passive voice. In other words, when He's referring to what happens in our lives, He is saying that what is happening is happening to you outside of yourself. That you are being impacted and moved upon By something outside of yourself, you are being moved upon by God. Verily I say unto you, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Look in verse 6. Jesus explains what he says here. He says, look, Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh... Now, stop there for a moment. Jesus is going to give two descriptions of what born again is. Born of the flesh is born the first time of your mama. Now, how many of us know that we were born physically, that the act of the mother and the daddy caused us to be born physically? How many of us know that? Peter says, you have been caused to be born again. The causation is in the parents' In a fleshly activity. The causation spiritually is in God birthing, conceiving in us His life. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the... Look at the next word. What does it say? Spirit is what? Spirit. He's saying, look, the way you got born the first time You were being acted upon. You were passive in this. That something was happening to you to which you accrued benefit. Well, the same thing he says is in the Spirit. The same way in the Spirit, this is how you began your life. In the Spirit. God did something. Ezekiel, I will put with them a new heart. My Spirit. I'm going to do something in them. So notice this, that... God must break our hearts in order to make our hearts. He must break our hearts in order to make our hearts. Notice that only after receiving the new heart, after beginning to be, after being born again, that we can and that we will obey God. Now we say yes. Well, by grace you have been saved. The work of God being born again. The entrance of the Holy Spirit. The moving of the Holy Spirit. The breaking of our hearts by God through the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the giving us of a new heart that changes us to say, on God to say, yes, please. How do you know you're called into the family of God? How do you know you're in the family of God? Very simply, do you want to be? Do you want to be? That's how you know whether you're saved or will be saved. And God is doing that. Do you want to be? How do you know someone is not a part of the family of God? They don't want to be. You see, God is not making us do something. He is causing us to be freed of the stone and giving us the revelation of His presence and of His love so that we will want to be born again. It's not against our will. It's with the will that has been generated by the Holy Spirit. And freed from the not wanting and the hardness to be free to say what? Yes. How many of you in here are born again because you didn't want to be? Someone says, Well, you can't, God. I'm not going to make you do it against your will. Of course not. But you see, of the will of man it won't work. Remember in John one thirteen. This isn't of the will of man, the of will of flesh, or the will of anybody else. This is the will of what whom? Of God. You see, the doctrine of salvation teaches that God is sovereign and chooses whom He will. Why has He done it? Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us. Why? Because He loves us. And what does it produce in us? You see, the understanding and the
1: effect
0: and the appreciation and the experience of grace.
1: <gasps> God
0: has saved me. Why? I don't know why. Why did I get birthed into the kingdom? By faith. There began to be produced in me, and I believe in everyone here who I know everyone here is a believer. A desire, a longing. You began to want to. That's God changing your heart. And when you said yes, however that yes came out, whatever terminology you use, your heart was saying, I am yielding to, I am embracing, I am returning your hug. God hugs us in the Spirit. And we love it so much that we hug hugging back. Come on. I mean, those of you know, when you get hugged by someone you love, what do you do? <laughs> now, maybe Texans. I don't think so. Tom, do you all do this? Don't you do that? Don't you hug your wife back when she hugs you? Why? Because you want to. Why do we hug God back? Because he, we want to. So what is the result? Listen to some of these verses. This is why God does it, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved, in His Son, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the principalities and the authorities and the heavenlies. Remember, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The doctrine of salvation. This is what it will result in. We used to sing this. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy shall be upon their lips. What? Head? head, Whatever. You can see why I'm not the, the leader of the song and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. Why want to know the doctrine of salvation so we can... Receive today the full benefit of what God wants to do on that day as much as we can today so that we can be the living reality and the experience of that great day. Listen to these words from Revelation, one of Phil's favorite words. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the family of God. God is among His people. His people are finally home. They finally came back home. And He will dwell among them and they shall be His people and God Himself shall be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Isn't God great? Why? Why the doctrine of salvation? Because you see, it sets forth everything that God has done and sets us in a place to be able to live a life that is full to the brim of all the grace of God that He's given to us and moved in our hearts by saving us. Salvation began at a certain point in my life and in your life. It continues today. And the fullness and the result of that salvation will be in the throne of God. So the purpose of Jesus' birth was to come to the crucifixion. The purpose of the crucifixion was the resurrection. The purpose of the resurrection was the ascension. The purpose of the ascension is His exaltation. The purpose of His exaltation is ascending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The purpose of Pentecost is the church to be birthed, His family on earth. The purpose of the church on earth is the church to come to heaven when He returns. And the purpose of the church in heaven is the church around the throne of God forever for the joy and pleasure of God over His gathering. That eternal family, as we will see His face. Thank God for the biblical doctrine of salvation that He has chosen us to which we have responded with great joy and freedom. Amen.
2: You want to come up?
1: <laughs> uh, yes. Sorry, I was dozing off for a moment there. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: it is always refreshingly humbling to remember how we got here. It, it, it lends volume to our song. It, uh, it fills our hearts with content. Grace is amazing. We are here by the grace of God. And if it were not for the intervening grace of God, we would only have known a life of selfish pursuit, of alienation from God. and not even not even a, a bit of a desire to know him would have been found in our hearts. But for the grace of God. See that phrase really means something, doesn't it? But for the grace. Of God. And the last thing that's in your outline there is that as a people, uh, the, the body of Christ has a message upon the earth and it is the message of salvation. It is the salt, it is the light, it is the component to man's experience in this earth. And the church must be committed to it. The church must be committed to the doctrine that man must come out of Adam and come into Christ. And as Peter said, the nicest old lady that you know, if she is in Adam, she is in danger eternally. Oh, but I've known her all my life. and, and and she's always just had kind things to say and if she's in Adam she may be a kind person in Adam but everybody who's in the bus in Adam that bus is going somewhere and it's going eternally away from God to a place of judgment where His wrath, His right response to sin is going to occur forever now the question for the church is are you committed to that message? Well, I'm not comfortable with that. You know, there's a lot of nice people out there in the world. And, and I've known a lot of really... Com- I've known some people who aren't in the church who are nicer than people I know in the church. Well, you know, that's, that's probably true. But do you understand? Nice people who are in Adam are apart from Christ. That's biblical. And I may not understand that. And I, quite honestly, the only reason why I wouldn't understand that is that I don't know the Bible. Because that is just blatantly the message of the Bible. is the announcement for man, come out of Adam. Come out of who you are apart from me and come into Christ. Put your faith and your hope in the person of Jesus Christ. The church has got to be committed to that message. Listen, if we're not committed to that message, we're not committed to the mission of being the church. We're simply not. If we like coming together, we have friends that are in the church. We like the lifestyle of the church. We prefer the morality of the church over the morality that we find in other places. But we're not committed to the doctrine of salvation. Then we're not committed to the church. Because the church is the pillar and support of the truth. This whole book is about man needing to be redeemed. Why do you have huge spaces in the Old Testament full of prophets? Because the prophets are announcing from God, you need to be saved. You need to repent. You need to turn to God and receive grace. The church has got to be committed to the doctrine of salvation or we have no message. Your commitment statement there that we need to ponder for the days ahead says, I agree that the scripture teaches that all of humanity is in sin and needing to be reconciled to God. And that the only means of reconciliation is through the person and work of Jesus Christ, his life, death and resurrection. I agree. That an individual is saved by the grace of God apart from any good works. And that repentance and faith are necessary for receiving the gift of salvation. I agree that salvation involves being born again, forgiven, reconciled to God, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit since the Scripture teaches that only those who are in Christ are part of His body, I commit to seek covenant membership after I have been born again and am able to testify of my conversion to Christ. Now, in a a way, as Peter shared with us today, in in a way that is left in the category of mystery, God both is the author of our salvation And also holds us responsible to respond to that. You know, most of us here don't understand electricity. But we know it's true. We won't go stick our finger in that wall outlet. We have no idea what the electrons are doing and and why they're making me jump across the floor when I do that. I guarantee you, 98% of the people in this room cannot explain electricity. But you fully... Submit to what it is. And God has done something to save us. He has done something to save us. The emphasis is on Him. And yet He stands and He requires a response. And I don't necessarily fully understand His role and mine in that exchange. I simply am called to respond to what He says biblically. And I don't want to assume for a moment that everyone who's here this morning has biblically responded to the grace of God. You can be in church many, many times and not respond to the grace of God. I remember Martin Luther, when he wrestled through the issue of being saved by grace, he said over and over again, "I, I am yours, Lord, save me. I am yours, Lord, save me. And something comes into your life when when that wants to be the word that comes out of your mouth. And I believe that's the grace of God. There will be some here this morning who we could have shown a cartoon this morning. And folks will walk out and leave. And they don't sense anything. But there are some here this morning who you sense, "I, I want to respond to God. I do. I do want to respond to Him. What do I do? Well, you respond really by surrendering to Him. By putting your trust in Him. Would you be here this morning in a place where, if I were to say, would, would you take the deed of your life and when you pull it out of your wallet or imaginary wallet there that you have a deed for your own life, and would, would you go to the bottom there where the space has a place for your signature and a date, and, and would you sign over the ownership of your life to Jesus Christ this morning? Do you, do you feel like you'd like to do that? and you'd no longer be the owner, but you'd be entrusting your life to one who loves you so much he died in your place, and he wants to give you life this morning. Do you believe on him that way? Do you trust him that way? And do you realize your need for him that way? Well, if you do, really what you're doing is in a way you're signing that document today, and you're saying, here, Lord, I... I give this to you. The deed of my life is yours. It's, it's no longer mine. I, I will not call the shots. I will no longer be the boss. I, I surrender to you. Well, if you feel like that's what you'd like to do, well, right now, just pray with me as I pray this prayer. And you tell the Lord that. And let your words be the expression of your heart this morning. Lord Jesus, I know that I need you. And I know that I really do want you in my life. And hearing this morning that, that you want to come into my life and save me, I want to respond to you today. I don't want to just hear that today. I don't even want to feel good about it today. I want to respond. I do want to give you my life. And so I do this morning. I, in my heart, I give my life over to you. I trust you. I do believe in Your love for me. I believe I'm safe in Your hands. I believe in what You did on the cross was for my good and my benefit. And it was necessary for my sins to be paid for. Thank You. Thank You for paying for my sins. And I do receive Your forgiveness. As amazing as that is, from this day on, Lord Jesus, my life belongs to You. It's not mine. It belongs to You. And I trust You with it. Do all that You desire to do in me. Make my life pleasing to You in all the ways You desire. And may I glorify You until I come to see You face to face. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's all stand up together and let's afresh sing and thank the Lord for this work of salvation, this gift of His grace in our life. And and if just now you you prayed that prayer for the first time, um, I think it's important. I think the Lord is honored by you making a little bit of a deal about that. Can you imagine? God has just given you His life. This is no small exchange. This is better than the uh, bulletins we gave you this morning, you know? This is God giving you His life. This is you coming in contact with the reason why you were first created. This is the day of all days on the calendar of your life. Tell somebody what happened to you. And if you really want to see somebody enjoy it, tell tell somebody who would understand what you're saying. You know, Don't tell the guy at McDonald's on the way out of here today. He probably won't get it. But tell somebody who invited you. If you don't know anybody here today, come find Peter. Find me or Matt or somebody you recognize and say, "Hey, uh, man! Today I signed over. Today I am so excited." Tell somebody and let God begin a great work in your life from this day on. Let's let's sing together.
3: Placed upon the perfect Lamb who suffered, bled, and died. The wisdom of a sovereign God whose greatness will be
2: shown
3: when those who crucified rejoice around your throne and go. God, He calls the filthy queen, the righteousness that proves to all justice has been made. And holy wrath is sad, yes God, through one atoning death.
2: yes God, peace. and overreach. Uh <laughs>
3: together came and you fulfilled your grand purpose to bring many sons to glory we will give thanks for that today and every day of our lives and Lord that praise will roll over into eternity we will sing to your glory for a million years and never get tired thank you for all that you've done Lord may we in our Christian lives only day by day marvel more grace of our Savior. May we would be more and more devastated by your compassion and your mercy to save such as we. Or may this never grow old for us, Lord. may we never grow tired of glorying in our salvation, Lord. It's the best thing that's ever happened to us. Lord you are such an amazing God. wonderful day. Bless you.